Tearing Down Walls, a Sunshine Life podcast with your host, Sylvia Cunningham. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Tearing Down Walls, Sunshine Live's monthly transatlantic show. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. Between the war in Ukraine, the pandemic, and the climate crisis, it's hard not to feel crushed by the weight of everything all at once. So today we're talking about how we cope in these times, how crises affect us, and how we might build resilience to get through them. We'll also check in with Natalia, the refugee from Ukraine we introduced you to on last month's show. And as always, we'll start the show with highlighting a DJ. This time we welcome Lubov, a Ukrainian DJ who fled her home city of Odessa last month. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. So first off, how are you? You came to Berlin from Odessa last month in March. How was your journey? Um, actually, like on the third day of war, I just uh, took my siblings. I have a brother and a sister. They are twins. And uh, yeah, after uh, quite a conversation with my family, because it was a really a hard decision, well, we realized that we need to go abroad. And uh, also our plan was changing during our journey. We were on the road for four days. First, we had a plan to go to Bulgaria because we have some relatives there. And uh, on our way, uh, like there were some troubles. So we decided to come to Berlin because in Berlin, I also like um, I have a lot of friends here. I was traveling back and forth uh, between Odessa and Berlin because it was like two hour flight and it was easy to get. And uh, yeah, I just realized that maybe um, I need to move here. Like I can do more here uh, rather than stay at home. What kind of role has music played in your life at this time? Has it been a source of comfort to you? Uh, I wasn't able to listen to music at all for the first like three weeks. Yeah, and uh, during the whole March, I like just like I slowly allowed myself to come back to my digging routine because like when you're a DJ I have tons of different email notifications from different labels that I like to be into what's going on right now and when you're out for almost a month uh, it takes a lot of time to re-listen to everything and most of the time actually I started to listen to uh, music I like when I was a teenager because like it just calms me down and uh, distracts me. So can you explain your musical style a bit? Um, You like to DJ with vinyl and you're a bit of a disco DJ. Can you tell us more about that and also where you fit into the club scene in Berlin, having played here before? I'm always joking to my uh, Berlin friends that I'm too funky for this town. (laughs) Yeah, because uh, like... um, I admire uh, most of the genres, but I've been DJing for like four years already. And I consider myself that maybe I will call myself a disco DJ because disco is like uh, the genre that I most uh, play and most admire. And I really love to collect all those rare vinyls from 80s, 70s. Uh, and uh, funk, uh, this uh, groove that it's for me is the field that's uh, super interesting. And then last question, what are your hopes for the coming months? What do you see for yourself? I feel a bit lost because I don't know where to start and how to. And since like Berlin is uh, super 
big city and uh, everyone here is a DJ somehow. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to get in touch with people I know and uh, to uh, also to apply to some radio shows, like to spread the culture because we have a lot of music. And uh, for me, I'm, I'm not just used to, to the idea that um, people here, they haven't heard those music before. I, my plan is to be proud Ukrainian here, to educate people. And also Ukrainians are not uh, so well educated in our heritage as well. Uh, so like to educate and to try to earn money and to help uh, my family and my friends uh, there. Lubov is a Ukrainian DJ from Odessa, now living in Berlin. Thanks again for your time today. Thank you so much for reaching out and for having me. Tearing Down Walls, our transatlantic show on Sunshine Life. You may remember that on last month's episode, we introduced you to a Ukrainian refugee named Natalia. We were connected to her through Quatera, an association of Russian-speaking LGBTQ plus people in Germany, helping her find her footing in Berlin. As we talked about in last month's episode, Natalia is also battling stage four cancer. After weeks of mounting frustration, Natalia was admitted last minute to the hospital for a checkup this month, but it's still not yet clear what kind of treatment she'll receive or when it will start. Meanwhile, Natalia's two sons, aged 21 and 28, are still in Ukraine. They're in the city of Lviv and living in pretty tight quarters at the moment. Natalia gave us an update on April 14th, and like last time, Quatera's press speaker Svetlana Shratanova translated for us. Uh, her sons, both sons, they try to to earn some money here and there. One of her sons is now doing some weight job at a restaurant, doing dishes, although he has two degrees and he's an engineer and he really loves his job and he's dreaming of going back to his job to build Ukraine again. So, like, the things he used to build are now being destroyed by the Russian army. And he really wants to go back to work and start rebuilding it, rebuilding the cities. Meanwhile, Natalia's birthday is coming up on May 9th, a date that is celebrated in Russia as Victory Day, because it marks the then-Soviet Union's defeat over Nazi Germany in World War II. And she told us she's not generally a fan of her birthday, but last year's was cause for celebration because after her cancer diagnosis, she was told she only had six months to live. So making it to the age of 47 was not something that she took for granted. But this year she's waiting for the 9th of May with fear because there is a feeling that Putin wants to declare another victory on the 9th of May, on the victory day. And uh, she's very afraid that uh, he might do everything to show his power to conquer Ukraine. She's very afraid uh, Russia might use chemical weapons uh, against Ukrainians, like uh, basically do even more harm and violence than they're already doing. Generally, the thoughts about Ukraine and the war is taking all her space that she has no capacity to think about her birthday, about turning 48, about 
having lived to the age of 48 because she she's with Ukraine in her thoughts all the time. That was Svetlana Shraitanova translating an update from Natalia, the Ukrainian refugee we first spoke with in last month's episode of Tearing Down Walls. We'll continue checking in with them over the coming weeks. Tearing Down Walls, a Sunshine Life podcast. On today's show, we're talking with people on both sides of the Atlantic about how we can pull through crises and build up resilience. Joining me now are the two hosts of Climate Change and Happiness, a podcast exploring the personal side of the climate crisis and how to cope with it. With us from Oregon is clinical and environmental psychologist Thomas Doherty. Welcome, Thomas. Thanks for having me. And joining us from Finland is climate emotions researcher Panu Pigala. Welcome, Panu. Thank you. So, Panu, let's start with you by first defining a term that might come up in our conversation, eco-anxiety. Can you help sum up what this is? Because it's not actually a brand new concept, is it? No, it's not. And Thomas has an even longer history with the term than I do, but I've been working with it for more than 10 years already. And uh, since 2018, there's been a strong rise globally in the usage of the term and especially climate anxiety, which has then different terms in various, various languages. And people have different connotations for that term in scholarship. We use it as a broad term, like anxiety is. You know, there may be stronger anxiety states sometimes, but fundamentally, actually, anxiety arises when you encounter some kind of problematic uncertainty. So as an emotion, anxiety is very much needed. It's a very adaptive response. But then again, open in public discussions, the term eco-anxiety is used to refer to people who sometimes feel it very intensely and strongly. Yeah, Thomas, you also talk a lot about how being anxious isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's a normal response and it helps us take action. But when does it tip from being something that's helpful to being something that's unmanageable and unhealthy? That's a personal question. You know, anxiety is a healthy emotion, apprehension about a future threat, and that helps us to to look into our environment and take action to keep ourselves healthy and keep ourselves safe so we don't want to lose the ability to feel anxious. I think climate change and environmental issues can be so, so overwhelming because they're complex and there's a lot of different pieces and factors and they're kind of insidious and mysterious. You know, eco-anxiety term originally came about with people's concerns about things like plastics and toxins in the food chain and things like that. So these things are kind of mysterious and they're hard to understand and that really does is scary for people. I think it gets to be problematic when people are perseverating on this and maybe their their natural tendencies toward anxiety are getting uh, ramped up. And one of the one of the key culprits is too much news intake. People talk about doom scrolling, where people are kind of get into an addictive quality of news intake. It kind of impacts our nervous system and it creates a, a stress and fight or flight response in our body. And once that happens in our body, then it, it harnesses our mind, and then it becomes this feedback loop where the more stress in our body leads us to take in more information, which causes the body to be more stressed. And that's where we need to sort of scale back. So what is that balance? Because, Thomas, you've also talked about how feelings of grief and sadness around extinction, for example, are normal, and how they are actually a sign of health and values. And I remember you said in the first episode of your podcast that we're in pain because we have values. So I'm wondering, is there a certain amount of pain required that we must feel to hold this grief, to actually make change and tackle this crisis? 
That's a really good question. I've never heard someone put it so plainly. Is there a certain amount of pain we must feel? I appreciate that, Sylvia. Pane, what do you think about that? you have a thought about that? Well, in the Finnish language, we have a word, kipu, which is translated as, as pain, but it also has certain other connotations. So and there is definitely pain involved, and there may be also be trade-offs, you know. So you notice more problems, then you are also more likely to do something about them. Values is a complex thing, thing here, but you also might feel more distress than the person who so far manages to keep a distance at these issues. And of course, if we think in the long run, we really need people who engage with these issues. Uh, but on a shorter time time frame, there may be trade-offs. Uh, you know, you get more more distress. But then, luckily, many people also find other people who want to act, and then you can also have more feelings of empowerment and meaning. So that's the positive possibility that may happen. But I would like to emphasize that this is not only up to the individuals, but our social and ecological surroundings have a great impact on how much we can react. So it would be terrible if this was only, you know, a task for the individual that whether one is able to manage and cope because there's so many factors which have a role for that. Thomas, did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah, some of this some of this moves into territory of just being mindful and being in the present moment because, you know, I think the goal emotionally with this is to feel the feelings that we have in the present moment. And if that's if that's pain, then we we're with the pain and you know we don't want to avoid our feelings so we want to be with our feelings but if we're if we stay in the present moment the pain will change to other things if i'm sharing my pain with other people i might then have a feeling of unity or support or if i take a walk outside and look at the sky or or look at the weather or you know then i might appreciate that moment the air on my skin and you know just being outside so it's this idea of you know, one of the images I use with, with my clients is like, a, like an old-fashioned compass. If you can imagine an old-fashioned mag- magnetic compass, the needle will spin around as you walk around because it's always seeking north. Uh, but it's not, a broken compass is stuck. The needle doesn't turn. It's just, a stu- you know, we don't want our emotions to be like a broken compass where we're kind of stuck on one emotion. We want, we want to be able to feel the, the different kinds of feelings. So it's a paradox. If we're open to the pain, and let it come in, then we'll also be open to other kinds of feelings, which is happiness and gratitude and thankfulness. So I think it's it's feeling each emotion as it is appropriate. Your podcast, Climate Change and Happiness, is an international podcast. You are an American man and a Finnish man talking from across the Atlantic. Do you find that you're gaining insights into kind of the different mentalities that come into play within your respective societies or circles? Panu, can you speak to that and what the insight into the Americans are? You know, this cross-culturality is one of our aims and values with this podcast. And of course, we are aware that we are both white males in rather privileged settings. And we try to invite people from various parts of the of the world and, and society. But there's going to be limits in that, that regard also. In Europe, Finland has sometimes been called one of the most America-leaning countries. But of course, it's still very, very different. And the polarized climate politics in the United States is something which is very heavily at, uh, affecting people's emotions also. 
and overall social dynamics are so important here and so that's that's forming a big difference so we have various opinions on climate matters also in finland and with climate anxiety and eco anxiety we had like one year of more free public discussion time before those terms got polarized so that was a nice time that it was easier to talk with people from the countryside for example and then when it got polarized in 2018 things got more more tricky and we have people who would like to frame eco anxiety as something for the neurotic people and and so on but still in any given Finnish community it's going to be much easier to talk about these issues than in many of the communities in the states because we don't have as high polarization. I'm wondering do you think that in a sense talking about the emotions and the feelings is this in a way a luxury that we're able to talk about these things? I mean, how do you make the case that being able to articulate our anxieties around climate change is actually useful and isn't instead this kind of luxury that's reserved for people who maybe aren't seeing climate change in their backyards? Well, I would just say, you know, in terms of the mental health impacts of climate change, there's different kinds of impacts. There's disaster impacts that we, you know, might feel really acutely. There's all the indirect impacts of refugees and economic problems and migrants and regional wars and resource wars. And, you know, even the things that are happening in Ukraine and things like that are all you know, linked in some ways to climate change. And then there's the, um, you know, the sitting with the emotional weight uh, of this uh, from afar, even if even if you're not, you're not currently experiencing a disaster. So I'd, I'd encourage people not to compete between these kinds of stresses. They're all stresses for people in different ways. Um, <clears throat> certainly some communities are, front, are on the front lines and they're, and they're dealing with injustice and environmental issues and climate issues. And um, so it's not a distant or a future threat. It's it's a daily threat. You know, disasters are going to find us wherever we are. And um, people's natural pain because of other people's pains needs to be honored just as well. Panu, do you have something to add to that? Yes. And of course, there's differences in how many resources people have to, for example, build proactive resilience and even in the midst of crisis, what's the available resources. Then for some people, it's more like dealing with post-traumatic stress. But then again, as Thomas points out, these stressors can also become combined. And I know many people in Finland at this time of the war in Ukraine and the new IPCC report, they've been needing to use these calming your nervous system exercises, which some of them were originally developed for, you know, after disaster post-traumatic work. So the stress can be high also in other places and we need to uh, do recognition for the profound injustices also in relation to eco-anxiety and eco-emotions. But uh, these skills of being able to name and validate and share emotions, they are very much needed also in conflict settings. And that's one lesson also to be learned. Panu Pikala is a climate emotions researcher in Finland, and Thomas Doherty is a clinical and environmental psychologist in Oregon. And you can hear more from both of them on their podcast, Climate Change and Happiness. Thank you both for your time today. Kiitos. Thanks, Sylvia. It was great to talk. On today's show, we're hearing different perspectives on the number of crises weighing on our minds these days. 
We've heard from Ukrainians who have fled war and are trying to navigate what to do next in Berlin. And we've talked with a psychologist and a researcher about articulating our feelings around the climate crisis. Now we want to talk more specifically about how these crises are affecting children and young people. Joining me now is Professor Yulia Asbrand. She is a child and youth psychotherapist and junior professor at Humboldt University in Berlin. Thank you for making the time today. Thank you for inviting me. So you recently co-authored an information letter to parents and teachers with the title War Far Away, Fear at Home, offering tips on how to help children process their concerns about the war in Ukraine. What are some of those specific concerns that children in Germany are having? Uh, well, first of all, we did not base this information letter on a current study. Therefore, I cannot really tell you from a representative survey which concerns children have. However, mm. we do know from other studies and clinical experience that children, some more than others, are really sensitive to what is happening in the world. They are learning about the world every day, and usually they ask the really tough questions. Why is there a war? Is it possible that there is a war at home? So overall, you could say that they are trying to understand what is happening and how this fits into their view of the world. And of course, there are concerns coming up regarding the current war, but also the pandemic. With questions like, why is there war? I mean, how can adults appropriately address their children's concerns when they're probably struggling to find answers to these questions themselves? I think that's one of the most important questions, and it's a question with no definite answer, um, because everyone has to find an answer for themselves. But we can give suggestions. Mm -hmm. First of all, it is important to find a somewhat clear position for yourself, also emotionally. So what is your own feeling? Are you angry or are you rather scared? Um, do you have options to talk to someone to find your point of view? And then it is a good idea to, to rather talk to your child about these difficult topics if you have a quiet minute and also if you're feeling emotionally um, stable, one could say. If the child is at all interested in the topic, because that's really important to say that it's absolutely okay if the child does not want to talk about things like war. War is no topic that children need to know about in detail. However, if children and parents come together to talk, it is important to listen and mainly address the child's questions. It is not really important to talk in detail about, the, for example, the current economic consequences if the child is mostly interested in finding an answer, for example, to a question like, the tank that I saw in the news, was it in our area? So it can be a relief for parents that they do not have to have all the answers. It can be absolutely okay to say, I do not know. Let's try to find out together. And I think that's also something that children need to learn, that there are not always answers to everything. And then it's important for the parents to provide some sense of security and that um, the child does not need to worry about these, um, these topics. The best guidance is just to stick to the child's questions and really listen to their concerns. And then it might be a lot easier than thinking that the parent has to provide all the answers. Sometimes when talking to friends lately about everything that's going on with the war in Ukraine, the pandemic, climate change, you can't help but reach this point where you think, is the world just falling apart or have things always been this bad? Because, of course, crisis and war has been ongoing for years. So do we have this perception that things are bad because of 24-7 news coverage or why do we feel like this? From a psychological point of view, um, it's really important to see that mankind is determined to focus on bad news. 
That's absolutely appropriate. Just imagine if you're standing in front of a tiger. It's not helpful to focus on the pretty fur or the intelligent eyes. It is helpful to be anxious and to run. However, it is relevant to consider that a 24-7 news coverage, which focuses on bad stuff to increase the amount of clicks, that cannot be healthy for our bad news-focused brains. And so I think that um, the perception that things are bad might be based on the news coverage. It also might be based on the fact that there is really a lot going on in the world. For example, we have to consider um, regarding the war in Ukraine that there is something like a live video stream um, if we consider all the social media. And of course, that's a lot different than, for example, um, if we are taking also the big wars like World War II. There was no constant news coverage. Do you think we can look to children or young adults for resilience? Do they have tools or a way of looking at situations that can perhaps help everyone? I think the important thing about um, children and youth is that they are living in some sort of a different world than we do because they are confronted every day with the fact that the world is changing. They have to learn that the sun is coming up every day like the really small children. And they are also they are learning to meet uh, new people um, every day. And we as adults, we sort of um, try to find our really stable environment. And if we want to, we can try not to change anything in our everyday life. And so I think um, what we can learn from them is that um, we are more open to change and we are more open to changing our actions and we are more open to adapting. And that's something that really is um, a main thing in childhood and youth. Professor Julia Asbrand is a child and youth psychotherapist and junior professor at Humboldt University in Berlin. Thank you again for your time. Thank you for your interest. Tearing Down Walls is a co-production of Sunshine Life and college radio station WNHU. 88.7 FM out of West Haven. Joining me now is Melissa Whitson. She is a professor of psychology at the University of New Haven, home to our partner station WNHU. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So across the U.S. right now, we are seeing reports of a mental health crisis in schools and how students are grappling not only with the aftermath of the pandemic, but with the realities of this ongoing situation and dangers of still getting COVID today. What is most concerning to you? It has evolved over time, I think. You know, at first it was really dealing with the isolation, um, the disruptions of schedules, which still certainly happens. But now it's kind of dealing with the post-traumatic responses that that kind of caused for all of us, not just children, but for also the adults who have to take care of those children and respond to them and look out for them. Um, So really it's when I think about the kind of collective trauma that we all experienced, even if we weren't directly impacted by it, now it's the aftermath of that. And I always get concerned that after something's done, we pay attention for a little while and then we forget about it and we think everyone should just go back to normal. Um, And that kind of doesn't take into consideration how trauma actually works. And so people are kind of seeing that now in schools, both secondary, higher ed, you know, elementary, where we are seeing a lot more mental health concerns come up for children. And I really think it is that reaction to the trauma that we've all experienced and in some ways are still kind of reminded of on a daily basis, even if we're kind of more back to our normal behavior. I love that we're paying more attention to these issues because they are important, but also kind of in our country, we tend to have a 
pull yourself up by a bootstraps, you know, very individualistic approach and where people just kind of have to get over it and it's over now, move on. Um, and that was really glossing over how trauma works and how people respond to things like this. I think it's safe to say that this topic of mental health has been increasingly on our radars over the past decade. When I was in high school a little over 10 years ago, we definitely did not have this vocabulary to talk about mental health. So with that said, with mental health more on our radars, have we learned how to manage it better? Oh, that's a great question. Because um, I, I definitely see that too, where even students in classrooms, you know, in college and high school um, have that vocabulary and they will share diagnoses they have, which in some ways is really great to see because it is reducing that stigma. But on the other hand, um, it becomes this kind of identity and it also, again, makes it part of that person. And so I do think that although we, people might be more willing to seek help um, and we might be trying to institute more access to services, that part we're getting right. But I think we're still uh, largely missing the buck on um, these larger contextual preventive measures that we can really put in place that are going to ultimately be more cost effective. You know, we don't have enough resources to treat everyone who has a mental health diagnosis, but we do have the resources to put things in place that can prevent them, um, that can help, you know, increase those sources of resilience. And, And that's more of a systemic change, which is always more difficult, but it also takes a kind of shift in perspective that is really difficult for us when we become so individually focused. Is there a risk of, I don't want to use the word competitive, but of people trying to measure in a way of whose trauma is worse? And with a term like collective trauma, how do you differentiate people's experiences and make sure that they're being treated adequately and appropriately? That's a good question, too. I mean, there's always a bit of competitive nature, certainly in U.S. culture, about pretty much everything. Social media has contributed to that quite a bit. And so there is a bit of danger in that. But I think that that danger is outweighed by the need to acknowledge that, you know, we've all experienced something traumatic. Although, again, those degrees will vary based on the direct impact, for example, the pandemic. Did you have a loved one who died? You know, know, those types of things. Not everyone did, but they need to know that they're still impacted by it because that gives us some grace in how we're responding to it. We need to have more compassion for ourselves and other people about how everyone is responding and dealing with this. Um, And so recognizing that, oh, you might be feeling this way because of this, even though you weren't directly impacted and that's okay and that's normal and it's okay to reach out for help. Um, So there's always that kind of danger in the competitiveness of it. But I think the need to acknowledge it and be accepting of it is more important. Melissa Whitson is a professor of psychology at the University of New Haven, home to our partner station, WNHU. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Tearing Down Walls is a co-production of Sunshine Live and WNHU at the University of New Haven. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. This show was produced and edited by me and Monica Muller-Kroll. We come out with a new episode every month. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.